Chapter Fifteen of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Fifteen. Captain Rothsay had intended to make the business excursion wait on that of pleasure, if pleasure the visit could be called, which was entered on from duty and would doubtless awaken many painful associations. But he changed his mind, and it was not until his return from London that he stayed on the way and sought out the village of Harbury. Verbal landscape painting is rarely interesting to the general reader, and as Captain Rothsay was certainly not devoted to the picturesque, it seems idle to follow him during his ten-mile ride from the nearest railway station to the place which he discovered was that of Mrs. Gwynne's abode, and where her son was perpetual curate. Her son! It seemed very strange to imagine Alison a mother, and yet, while he thought, Angus Rothsay almost laughed at himself for his folly. His boyish fancy had perforce faded at seventeen, and he was now, pshaw, he was somewhere above forty. As for Mrs. Gwynne, sixty would probably be nearer her age. Yet, not having seen her since she married, he never could think of her but as Alice in Balfour. As before observed, Captain Rothsay was by no means keenly susceptible to beauty of scenery, otherwise he would often have been attracted from his meditations by that through which he passed. Lovely woodlands, just bursting into the delicate green of spring, deep, still streams, flowing through meadows studded with cattle, forest roads shadowed with stately trees, and so little frequented that the green turf spread from hedge to hedge, and the primroses and bluebells sprung up almost in the pathway. All these composed a picture of rural loveliness which is peculiar to England, and chiefly to that part of England where Harbury is situated. Captain Rothsay scarcely noticed it, until, pausing to consider his track, he saw in the distance a church upon a hill. Beautiful and peaceful it looked, its ancient tower rising out against the sky, and the evening sun shining on its windows and gilded vane. That must surely be my landmark, thought Captain Rothsay, and he made an inquiry to that effect of a man passing by. Ay, ay, meester, was the answer in rather unintelligible Doric. Thot be's Harbury Church, as sure as my name's John Dent, and thot red house, can I ye see it? Thot's our parson's. Prompted by curiosity, Rothsay observed, Oh, Mr. Gwynne's, he is quite a young man, I believe. Do you like him, you good folks hereabout? Some on us done, and some on us donna. He's not much of parson, though. He won't send yer to sleep wi his long preachings. But oi say the mon's a good mon. He'll come and see yer when you're bad, and talk to ye by the hour though he didna talk oot o' the Bible. But oi am a lad o' to forest, and'll be a keeper some toim. That's better nor book larnin. Captain Rothsay had no will to listen to more personal revelations from honest John Dent, so he said quickly, Perhaps so, my good fellow. Then added, Mr. Gwynne has a mother living with him, I believe. What sort of person is she? Hers a good enough lady, oi reckon, only a bit too proud. Many's the blanket hers gen to poor folk, and my old mother sees her every week, but hers never shook hands we are yet. Eh, hey, meester, won't ye go? This last remark was bellowed after Captain Rothsay, whose horse had commenced a sudden canter, which ceased not until its owner dismounted at the parsonage gate. This gate formed the boundary of the garden, and a most lovely spot it was. It extended to the churchyard, with which it communicated by a little wicket door. You passed through beautiful parterres and alleys, formed of fragrant shrubs, to the spot where grew the turf in many a mouldering heap. It seemed as though the path of death were indeed through flowers. Garden and churchyard covered the hill's summit, 
and from both might be discerned a view such as is rarely seen in level England. It was a panorama, extending some twenty or thirty miles across the country, where, through woodlands and meadowlands, flowed the silver windings of a small river. Here and there was an old ruined castle, a manor-house rising among its ancestral trees, or the faint misty smoke-cloud that indicated some hamlet or small town. Save these the landscape swept on unbroken, until it ended at the horizon in the high range of the Deeshire hills. Even to Captain Rothsay this scene seemed strangely beautiful. He contemplated it for some time, his hand still on the unopened gate, and then he became aware that a lady, whose gardening dress and gardening implements showed she was occupied in her favorite evening employment, was looking at him with some curiosity. The traces of life's downward path are easier to recognize than those of its ascent. Though the mature womanhood of Alison Balfour had glided into age, Rothsay had no difficulty in discovering that he was in the presence of his former friend. Not so with her. He advanced, addressed her by name, and even took her hand, before she had the slightest idea that her guest was Angus Rothsay. "'Have you, then, so entirely forgotten me? Forgotten the days in our native Perthshire, when I was a bit laddie, and you, our guest, were Miss Alice and Balfour?' There came a trembling over her features, I, aged woman as she was. But at her years, all the past, whether of joy or grief, becomes faint, else how would age be born? She extended both her hands with a warm friendliness. "'Welcome, Angus Rothsay. No wonder I did not know you. These thirty years, is it not thus much, have changed you from a boy into a middle-aged man, and made of me an old woman.' She really was an elderly lady now. It seemed almost ridiculous to think of her as his youth's idol. Neither was she beautiful. How could he ever have imagined her so? Her irregular features, unnoticed when the white and red tints of youth adorned them, were now, in age, positively plain. Her strong-built frame had, in losing elasticity, lost much of grace, though dignity remained. Looking on Mrs. Gwynne for the first time, she appeared a large, rather plain woman. Looking again, it would be to observe the noble candor that dwelt in the eyes, and the sweetness, at times even playfulness, that hovered round the mouth. Regarding her for the third time, you would see a woman whom you felt sure you must perforce respect, and might, in time, love very much if she would let you. Of that gracious permission you would long have considerable doubt, but once granted, you would never unlove her to the end of your days. As for her loving you, you would not be quite clear that it did not spring from the generous benevolence of her nature, rather than from any individual warmth toward yourself. And such was the reserve of her character, that, were her affection ever so deep, she might possibly never let you know it until the day of your death. Yet she was capable of attachments, strong as her own nature. All her feelings, passions, energies were on a grand scale. In her were no petty feminine follies, no weak, narrow illiberalities of judgment. She had the soul of a man and the heart of a woman. "'You were gardening, I see,' said Captain Rothsay, making the first ordinary remark that came to his mind to break the awkward pause. "'Yes, I do so every fine evening. Harold is very fond of flowers. That reminds me I must call him to you at once, as it is Wednesday, service night, and he will be engaged in his duties soon.' "'Pray, let us enter the house. I should much like to see your son,' said Angus Rothsay. He gave her his arm, and they walked together, 
through the green alleys of holly to the front door. Then Mrs. Gwynne stopped, put her hand over her eyes for a moment, removed it, and looked earnestly at her guest. Angus Rothsay! How strange this seems! Like a dream! A dream of thirty years! Well, let us go in. Mechanically, and yet in a subdued absent manner, she laid her bonnet and shawl on the hall table and took off her gardening gloves, thereby discovering hands which, though large, were white and well-formed, and in their round, taper delicacy, exhibited no sign of age. Captain Rothsay, without pausing to think, took the right hand. "'Ah! You wear still the ring I used to play with when a boy. I thought—and recollecting himself he stopped, ashamed of his discourtesy in alluding to what must have been a painful past. But she said, quietly, sadly, "'You have a good memory. Yes, I wear it again now. It was left to me, ten years since, on the death of Archibald Maclean. Strange that she could thus speak that name. But over how many a buried grief does the grass grow green in thirty years? In the hall they encountered a young man. Harold, said Mrs. Gwynne, give welcome to an old, a very old friend of mine, Captain Angus Rothsay. Angus, this is my son, my only son, Harold. And she looked upon him as a mother, widowed for twenty years looks upon an only son. Yet the pride was tempered with dignity, the affection was veiled under reserve. She, who doubtless would have sustained his life with her own heart's blood, had probably never since his boyhood suffered him to know a mother's passionate tenderness, or to behold a mother's tear. Perhaps that was the reason that Harold's whole manner was the reflection of her own. Not that he was like her in person, for nature had to him been far more bountiful. But there was a certain rigidness and harshness in his mien, and a slightly repellent atmosphere around him. Probably not one of the young lambs of his flock had ever dreamed of climbing the knee of the Reverend Harold Gwynne. Though he wore the clerical garb, he did not look at all apostle-like. He was neither a St. Paul nor a St. John. Yet a grand, noble head it was. It might have been sketched for that of a young philosopher, a Galileo or a priestly, with the heavy, strongly marked brows. The eyes, hackneyed as the description is, no one can paint a man without mentioning his eyes, those of Harold Gwynne were not unlike his mother's, in their open, steadfast look. Yet they were not soft like hers, but of steel-gray, diamond-clear. He carried his head very erect, and these eyes of his seemed as though unable to rest on the ground. They were always turned upwards, with a gaze, not reverent or dreamy, but eager, inquiring, and piercing as truth itself. Such was the young man with whom Captain Rothsay shook hands, congratulating his old friend on having such a son. "'You are more fortunate than I,' he said. "'My marriage has only bestowed on me a daughter.' "'Daughters are a great comfort sometimes,' answered Mrs. Gwynne, "'though for my part I never wished for one.' The quick reproachful glance of Harold sought his mother's face, and shortly afterwards he re-entered his study. "'My son thinks I meant to include a daughter-in-law,' was Mrs. Gwynne's remark, while the concealed playfulness about her mouth appeared. "'He is soon to bring me one.' "'I know it, and know her, too. By this means I found you out. I should scarcely have imagined Sarah Derwent the girl for you to choose. He chooses, not I. A mother, whose dutiful son has been her sole stay through life, has no right to interfere with what he deems his happiness," said Alison gravely. And at that moment the young curate reappeared, ready for the duties to which he was summoned by the sharp sound of the church-going bell. "'I will stay at home with Captain Rothsay,' observed Mrs. Gwynne. 
Her guest made a courteous disclaimer, which ended in something about religious duties. "'Hospitality is a duty, too. At least we thought so in the North,' she answered. "'And old friendship is ever somewhat of a religion with me. Therefore I will stay, Harold.' "'You are right, mother,' said Harold. But he would not that his mother had seen the smile which curled his lip as he passed along the hall and through the garden towards the churchyard. There it faded into a look, dark and yet mournful, which, as it turned from the dust beneath his feet to the stars overhead, and then back again to the graves, seemed to ask despairingly, at once of heaven and earth, for the solution of some inward mystery. While Harold preached, his mother and Captain Rothsay sat in the parsonage and talked of their olden days, now faint as a dream. The rising wind, which, sweeping over the wide champagne, came to moan in the hillside trees, seemed to sing the dirge of that long-past life. Yet the heart of both, even of Angus Rothsay, throbbed to its memory, as a Scottish heart ever does to that of home and the mountain land. Among other long-unspoken names came that of Miss Flora Rothsay. She is an old woman now, a few years older than I. Harold visits her not infrequently, and she and I correspond now and then, but we have not met for many years. Yet you have not forgotten her. Do I ever forget? said Alison, as she turned her face towards him. And looking thereon, he felt that such a woman never could. Their conversation, passing down the stream of time, touched on all that was memorable in the life of both. She mentioned her husband, but merely the two events, not long distant each from each, of their marriage and his death. "'Your son is not like yourself. Does he resemble Mr. Gwynne?' observed Rothsay. "'In person, yes, a little. In mind, no, a thousand times no.' Then, recollecting herself, she added, "'It was not likely. Mr. Gwynne has been dead so many years that my son—it was always my son—has no remembrance of his father.' Alas, that there should be some whose memories are gladly suffered to perish with the falling of the earth above them. A thought like this passed through the mind of Angus Rothsay. "'I fancy,' said he, "'that I once met Mr. Gwynne. He was—my husband.' Mrs. Gwynne's tone suppressed all further remark, even all recollection of the contemptible image that was intruding on her guest's mind, an image of a young, roistering, fox-hunting fool. Rothsay looked on the widow, and the remembrance passed away, or became sacred as memory itself. And then the conversation glided as a mother's heart would fain direct it, to her only son. He was a strange creature ever, was my herald. In his childhood he always teased me with his why and because. He would come to the root of everything, and would not believe anything that he could not quite understand. Gradually I began to glory in this peculiarity for I saw it argued a mind far above the common order. Angus, you are a father. You may be happy in your child, but you never can understand the pride of a mother in an only son." While she talked, her countenance and manner brightened, and Captain Rothsay saw again, not the serene, stern widow of Owen Gwynne, but the energetic, impassioned Alison Balfour. He told her this. "'Is it so? Strange! And yet I do but talk to you as I often did when we were young together. He begged her to continue. His heart warmed as it had not done for many a day, and, to lead the way, he asked what chance had caused the descendant of the Balfours to become an English clergyman. From circumstances. When Harold was very young, and we two lived together in the poor highland cottage where he was born, my boy made an acquaintance with an Englishman, one Lord Arendale, a great student. 
Harold longed to be a student too. A noble desire. I shared it too. When the thought came to me that my boy would be a great man, I nursed it, cherished it, made it my whole life's aim. We were not rich. I had not married for money. And there was a faint show of pride in her lip. Yet Harold must go, as he desired, to an English university. I said in my heart, he shall, and he did. Angus looked at Mrs. Gwynne, and thought that a woman's will might sometimes be as strong and daring as a man's. Allison continued, My son had only half finished his education when fortune made the poor poorer. But Scotland and Cambridge, thank heaven, were far distant. I never told him one word. I lived. It matters little how. I cared not. Our fortune lasted, as I had calculated it would, till he had taken his degree and left college rich in honours, and then— she ceased, and the light in her countenance faded. Angus Rothsay gazed upon her as reverently as he had done upon the good angel of his boyish days. "'I said you were a noble woman, Alison Balfour. I was a mother, and I had a noble son.' They sat a long time silent, looking at the fire and listening to the wind. There was a momentary interruption, a message from the young clergyman, to say that he was summoned some distance to visit a sick person. "'On such a stormy night as this,' said Angus Rothsay. "'Harold never fails in his duties,' replied the mother with a smile. Then turning abruptly to her guest, "'You will let me talk, old friend, and about him. I cannot often talk to him, for he is so reserved, that is, so occupied with his clerical studies. But there never was a better son than my Harold.' "'I am sure of it,' said Captain Rothsay. The mother continued, Never shall I forget the triumph of his coming home from Cambridge. Yet it brought a pang, too, for then first he had to learn the whole truth. Poor Harold! It pained me to see him so shocked and overwhelmed at the sight of our lowly roof and mean fare, and to know that even these would not last us long. But I said to him, My son, what signifies it, when you can soon bring your mother to your own home? For he, already a deacon, had had a curacy offered him, as soon as ever he chose to take priest's orders. Then he had already decided on entering the church. He had chosen that career in his youth. Towards it his whole education had tended. But, she added with a troubled look, my old friend, I may tell you one doubt, which I never yet breathed to living soul. I think at this time there was a struggle in his mind. Perhaps his dreams of ambition rose higher than the simple destiny of a country clergyman. I hinted this to him, but he repelled me. Alas, he knew, as well as I, that there was now no other path open for him. Mrs. Gwynne paused, and then went on, as though speaking more to herself than to her listener. The time came for Harold to decide. I did not wonder at his restlessness, for I knew how strong ambition must be in a man like him. God knows I would have worked, begged, starved rather than he should be thus tried. I told him so the day before his ordination but he entreated me to be silent, with a look such as I never saw on his face before, such as I trust in God I may never see again. I heard him all night walking about his room, and the next morning he was gone ere I rose. When he came back, he seemed quite excited with joy, embraced me, told me I should never know poverty more, for that he was in priest's orders and we should go the next week to the curacy at Harbury. And he has never repented? I think not. He is not without the honours he desired, for his fame in science is extending far beyond his small parish. He fulfils his duties scrupulously, and the people respect him, though he sides with no party, high church or evangelical. We abhor illiberality, my son and I. That is clear. 
otherwise I had never seen Alison Balfour quitting the kirk for the church. Angus Rothsay, said Mrs. Gwynne, with dignity, I have learned throughout a long life the lesson that trifling outward differences matter little. The spirit of religion is its true life. This lesson I have taught my son from his cradle, and where will you find a more sincere, moral, or pious man than Harold Gwynne? Where indeed, mother, echoed a voice, as Harold, opening the door, caught her last words. But come, no more o' that, and thou lovest me. Harold! End of chapter 15